What is that when you jump around and carry on and do the who dat who dat stuff? Who dat? You know, that's really kind of a, a fan. You know, that's that's our 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 chant. Duncan Holder podcast back at you, episode three here on the Athletics Podcast Network. And of course, it's Monday. It's the freebie. You can go check it out on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts sent to you. Of course, you can subscribe, rate, review on the Apple, iTunes, iPod, iPad, wherever you listen to them. You can go check all that out. But Jeff, Plenty, plenty, plenty to talk about. Of course, we knew we'd have a busy day uh, last couple of days. Saints making their roster cuts. LSU wiping the floor with Georgia Southern and showing us they actually have an offense that's been updated since 1983. Uh, But also, you look at Auburn, big win against Oregon. That's the next opponent for Tulane. We're going to talk about that as well on this podcast with myself, Larry Holder, and of course, Jeff Duncan on the other end of the mic. And Jeff, uh, let's just start off here with the Saints. Certainly, we knew cuts were coming. I think a couple of the cuts probably took you aback. I know some took me aback. And of course, they make a trade. I mean, they trade for veteran linebacker Kiko Alonzo from the Dolphins, uh, trading away special teams guru, Vince Beagle. And Jeff, let's just start off with that trade in and of itself. It's not the first time we've seen the Saints make trades around the cut line, but this one maybe seems a little bit more significant just because of the significance of the player. Look, Kiko Alonso is a starter in the NFL. I'm not sure how much his role was going to be with the Dolphins this year, but he's a notable name. And Jeff, they send away a special teams guy, but Kiko Alonso is not really known for playing special teams, so I don't know totally what to make of this trade, Jeff. Yeah, I don't either. I thought it was surprising. It reminded me of Peyton's early years. Didn't they pull off a trade for Scott Shanley? And I think they got Mark Simino in a trade, but Shanley was definitely done during training camp late in his first season. Uh, it kind of reminded me of that. Alonso, I think they're just taking advantage of, of the clear house cleaning that's going on down in Miami. Uh, They are obviously trying to shed uh, salary and veteran players, acquire as many young players and draft picks as they can, full-blown transition in Miami. And Alonzo has a lot of skins on the wall. He's clearly not the same player he was back when he was the NFL Defensive Rookie of the Year. But I'm sure there's some familiarity with him uh, in the organization and uh, maybe it just gives them a veteran uh, number four linebacker behind the starting three. I know that they like Craig Robertson, but Alonzo would be an upgrade over Robertson, a guy that can play in the middle. He can also play weak side, so he has some position flexibility, as the coaches like to say. And uh, so it, I can see the fit there. Uh, they didn't have a lot of depth behind, a lot of experience depth behind the starters. And Alonzo gives them some, I think, uh, insurance, Larry, if, if say, Alex Anzalone uh, can't get through a season. I mean, last year was the first time he did that uh, in a long time, and he's already been nicked up in this camp. So maybe there's some concern there about his health. That's, that's the only thing that pops to mind uh, for me right now. 
Well, I think it has to have, have something to do with health because Craig Robertson was injured uh, a couple of preseason games ago and hasn't practiced since. And he would be kind of your jack-of-all-trades linebacker in a pinch uh, if something were to go down. Uh, Alex Anzalone has been banged up. I just assume, though, he'd be back for the regular season, and he easily could be. I mean, we are a week away from the Monday Nighter home opener against the Texans. And then A.J. Klein, I'm not going to press panic on him, but he missed the last couple of practices before they went away for the final preseason game, and we haven't seen them on the practice field since. I'm just going to throw that out there. Like He could be healthy, I get it, but it seems like Alonzo would be kind of a pinch for A.J. Klein if something more serious were to happen. Again, like I'm saying, I'm just saying that he missed practice a couple of times uh, last week. And we don't know the severity. So I'm basically speculating. But if you bring in a linebacker like that, it's almost more of like bringing in like a Manti Teo uh, that they did a couple years ago. And he ended up being inactive basically the entire year. And like you said, Jeff, it it, it costs you a decent bit. You're not going to take on all of Kiko Alonso's salary. But uh, I think it's one of those... A combination of the Dolphins dumping players, which uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about here in a little bit since the Dolphins dumped some players to the Texans. <laughs> so uh, right. we, we're going to talk about that, too. Uh, that was some crazy stuff. Absolutely. They get Laramie Tunsil and Kenny Stills. I, Jeff already pitched for Kenny Stills to be on the uh, weekly conference call with a player. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, you know, I just no, but uh, the, the Texans were one of the most active. They were the most active team in the league. And I'm wondering how that's going to impact them as they get ready for their opener, because they didn't have one or two changes. They had wholesale changes across various position groups. Uh, You got to wonder what's going on down in Houston. Clearly they're all in and we can discuss this in greater detail uh, later this week as we get ready for the opener. But um, I don't know what's going on in Houston, but I do think that, that the health of the current linebacker core certainly played a part. Now I saw, uh, Alex Anzalone out in L.A. Uh, he was at the the Saints-Chargers game, was in the press box, and was fine. I mean, he looked fine to me, uh, was at all the team meetings. So I think they were just being uh, cautious with him and his injury. But the one with A.J. Klein's a little more. I, I forgot about A.J. Klein, to be honest with you, until you reminded me that he had been out. Um, I think they're clearly just trying to get some insurance there because that is a collision position. Very rarely do you have your starting linebacker core play all 16 games intact. Usually those guys go down. I think they feel like Alonzo's a smart guy, a guy that fits into Mike Nolan, what he likes in his linebackers. He's a lot like, you know, you mentioned Manti Teo. I mean, he's a lot like him. So I think it it makes a lot of sense from a scheme standpoint and culture standpoint, a veteran leader, a guy that's been a defensive captain before. We know the Saints always value that. Uh, so I like the move. Uh, you know, this is a team that's ready to win right now, and Alonzo's the kind of guy that can come in and play a role for you. Now, Jeff, let's shift over to some of the surprises within the roster cuts. Uh, we saw players like young players like Devana Zigbo, Emmanuel Butler. Uh, we saw those guys uh, be cut. And the only player that did not make it through waivers – back to the Saints that they were hoping for was Devon Azigbo. Had plenty of interest from teams. Uh, I, I read Field Yates from ESPN reporting that 
Three teams claimed Zigbo, but he is heading to Jacksonville to play with the Jaguars to back up Leonard Fournette. And Jeff, I think this is a point where, look, fans are not happy. <laughs> I can tell you just by my reaction to Twitter. Uh, there, Some people are jumping overboard and saying this is the next Rob Nenkovich. Uh, the, the kids never played it down. Let's calm down there. And yet, we knew he was a talented back, but I think the Saints looked at it as they have Dwayne Washington, who I thought played fine during the preseason, and he plays special teams. And here's the thing. If you're down to running back number three on your depth chart, you're in trouble because that means Kamara's out or Latavius Murray's out. And so he wouldn't be playing a ton necessarily anyway. But, but Jeff, you know, it's just another point where the Saints, uh, look, they spotted a good position player and other teams liked him. And the Saints roster, to me, just goes to show you the depth of the roster once again. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with everything you said. First of all, Zigbo wasn't going to play this year anyway unless there was a string of injuries. And, and like you said, uh, no one wants that. that. If you lose Alvin Kamara on this team, they're in trouble. Uh, Zigbo was impressive. He can run at the NFL level. I think anyone can see that. All the other uh, nuances and responsibilities that running backs have to have, especially in the Saints offense, that was where the struggles were, you know, pass protection, getting out into the passing routes. Uh, there's a lot on the plate of a running back in the Saints offense. And he was a little cloudy on some of that stuff, some of those responsibilities. And I think that's why they felt more comfortable with Washington in addition to his special teams play. I, th- I thought Washington earned that roster spot. And I didn't think that Zigbo played poorly at all. I think it was probably one of their toughest cuts to make. And they were hoping he'd slip through and they'd get him on the practice squad. The, the, the ceiling, I think, for a Zigbo would have been to eventually replace Latavius Murray and be the Saints' backup to Kamara. I mean, that's what you're talking about. So is it a huge loss? Not at all, but it could end up being a player uh, that goes on and has a fine NFL career. But, uh, you know, he's going to have to fight to see playing time in Jacksonville too. I think the, the interest from Jacksonville makes a lot of sense because they run the exact same zone-blocking scheme that the Saints run uh, under Doug Marone. Uh, he, he will fit in perfectly there as well. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense. You and I both like the Zigbo, uh, but in the grand scheme of things, I don't think this is a significant loss. And Leonard Fournette gets injured, so they need someone who can kind of have a similar running style between the tackles type of guy, and they went out and got him. And so I'm sure Saints fans are going to be curious to see his progression as his career moves on. Let's go to wide receiver Emmanuel Butler. I want to say it's sort of a surprise, and yet it's sort of not when you look at the injuries and the roster makeup that the Saints needed to go through. You look at it, and the Saints went light on tight end, lighter possibly, I'd say, on wide receiver. Uh, They went heavier on the offensive line and a little heavier on the defensive line because of injuries and, and, and situations that they have on their roster. And but the number one person people are looking at is Emmanuel Butler. And, and Jeff, just to me, it seems like they had a feeling that maybe the tape wasn't good enough in games. And so they tried to let him slip through. And you got him and little Jordan Humphrey and Dan Arnold back in the practice squad. So it's kind of uh, not great case scenario for those players, but best case scenario for the Saints. Yeah, and don't we do this every year, Larry? I mean, everyone. 
uh, media fans, we overvalue the Saints players because that's what we see in front of us. And, and we cover this team with a fine-tooth comb. Every move is analyzed and, and overanalyzed, and we tend to overvalue players at the end of the roster. Every year uh, I get on my Twitter timeline filled with mentions saying there's no way they can release Emmanuel Butler. He'll never slip through waivers, and every year those players do. Emmanuel Butler is more valuable to the Saints than he is to most teams. He, the reason he didn't get drafted is because he can't run. He can't beat NFL-caliber defensive backs and, and create separation. We saw that throughout preseason. What he can do is a lot like what Marcus Colston did, and that is adjust his body, make competitive catches, and he has a quarterback like Drew Brees, a Hall of Fame quarterback, the most accurate quarterback in NFL history, throwing him those back shoulder throws and those balls in phone booths. So he becomes a valuable weapon for them because he has such great hands and can make those competitive catches. Uh, He's like a poor man's Mike Thomas or Marcus Colston. But other teams don't have Drew Brees that can make those throws, so they need a receiver that can get open and create space and that's not Emmanuel Butler. That's the reason he was available and slipped through. So you have to kind of understand the landscape of the NFL there. There's a reason he didn't slip through. I was a little surprised that little Jordan Humphrey um, was brought back because I didn't think he was that impressive other than a couple of plays he made in the preseason. I would have kept Cyril Grayson ahead of him just because I think he has the redeeming quality of speed, uh, a guy that you could work with, a former track athlete that might have a higher ceiling than, say, Humphrey. Uh, but I, I didn't think there were really any other surprises at all. I mean, I think we, we probably ought to talk about this, but I, I think the injuries on the offensive line affected their final 53. And I don't think what we see right now, this 53-man roster is going to be the same 53-man roster in a week or two as they adjust and get some offensive linemen fully healthy. I think that forced their hand and caused them to be a little lighter in some areas on the team just because they they need the insurance at offensive line. Well, you look at Cameron Tom, we didn't expect him to be on season-ending injured reserve. And that we've talked highly about Cameron Tom before on the podcast. And, Jeff, uh, it opened a spot for sure for Will Clapp. I mean, that they kept Nick Easton, even though we hemmed and hawed about uh, Nick Easton's uh, lack of really impressive play. But they keep Will Clapp on the team. Uh, and then they go and keep two reserve tackles, which I think that we've seen the Saints keep nine offensive linemen before in the past, but a lot of times in, in the past year or two, they've kept eight. And so they kept Patrick Omama, who is probably most famous for in this preseason running over his own guy trying to catch a screen pass. And then, and then Ethan Greenidge, who I can honestly tell you was never on my radar. At all. Undrafted rookie from Villanova. He missed a lot of the early offseason and he was gone and forgotten. And I, I, honestly, at times, I probably thought he was going to get cut way early just because he couldn't get on the field, but he impressed the coaching staff. So I feel like nine offensive linemen, though, Jeff, is a lot for this team. It's unusual. They almost always go with eight. And uh, I think, again, the injuries and some health concerns and some flexibility uh, concerns affected them. Uh, Greenidge, actually, once he got on the field, uh, he he popped out to me with his athletic ability. He definitely uh, has the athletic ability to play in the NFL. Uh, He can move, 
and you can see why they liked him. I think he's probably a raw prospect that they feel like they you know have an upside there that they can develop. Uh, but again, I'm not sure that Ethan Greenidge's roster spot is etched in stone. I, I really think that that's going to be an area that they try to address going forward. I'll be shocked if they keep both him and Omamot on the roster for the full season. I I just think that's an area that's going to see some movement. Uh, But they have to be ready for the Texans right now, and uh, that's what they decided to do, give themselves a little depth there at that position in case they have some injuries. And, Jeff, in the past we've seen the Saints hang on to a player, wait for all the rosters to shake out, and cut a guy. And then when your rosters are all set, practice squads are all set, you slip a guy through, and we know how much teams were valuing depth at offensive line. Greenidge, um, he may make it through and keep playing, but if he doesn't, and if you see him get cut, I think it's part of it that they wanted to keep him away from those desperate for offensive linemen help. And so maybe, you know, gone and forgotten on the waiver wire, people kind of forget about him. But let me reverse back real quick because I, I get a lot of these questions all the time. And with no Emmanuel Butler on the roster, with no little Jordan Humphrey, people ask all the time about Austin Carr. Jeff, uh, what do you make of Austin Carr sticking to the roster? He plays plenty of games. He doesn't bring a lot of on-field production. Uh, But Jeff, I'm, I'm sure you have some insight as to why the Saints value Austin Carr so much. Well, yeah, we, we heard, everyone heard what Drew Brees said about him, and uh, it's, it's clear this offense uh, values people that know what they're doing. I know that sounds simplistic, but it's the truth. That you have to know how to read defenses. You have to know exactly what alignment to be at. There's a lot on the plate of a Saints receiver, more so than just running out there and getting open. Part of getting open is knowing what to do to get open, and the Saints put so much responsibility on the receivers to read the coverage and be on the same page with Drew Brees because a lot is happening as they get to the line of scrimmage as to what route they run and exactly what split they have to be at. And the sophistication of their alignments is such that if you're six inches off or a foot off of your of your split, uh, you're probably going to have an incompletion, and Drew Brees – uh, values someone that can get set up properly, run the right route, because he throws so much on anticipation and knowing where the receiver's supposed to be that a guy like Austin Carr has value. It's the exact same thing that Lance Moore had in this offense. Lance Moore was not a special talent, as we saw when he left the Saints and kind of fell off the radar screen with the Pittsburgh Steelers. When he played with the Saints, He was more valuable. It's exactly what we're talking about with Emmanuel Butler. Uh, These receivers that know where to go and can get in the right spot, uh, there's a trust and a confidence level that Drew Brees has with them, and that's why Austin Carr is on this roster. He's that guy. He's this this year's Lance, you know, this era's Lance Moore. Minus all the production. I think that's why Saints fans are wondering why he keeps sticking on the roster. But he's just not, you know, he, he's not in the position right now to, to get that. I mean, he, he didn't play as much last year. I think they see him as Lance Moore early on in his career. I mean, if you look back at Lance Moore's career, I think it took him three or four years to get on the field, and he has to get in the right exact uh, situation. I just think we live in this society where everybody 
uh, you know, it's the microwave society. We have to have instant results right away. No one wants to be patient. Uh, we're seeing it right now with Marcus Davenport. I've, I've heard I've heard people in town here in New Orleans, some talk radio uh, circuits saying he's got to have double digit sacks this year. He's a bust. Well, that's ridiculous. And the same thing for Austin Carr. Players develop over time. I think we just uh, our expectations are too high uh, sometimes. And, and look, I I understand. Uh, you watch a preseason game, you see a player make a play, and you think that translates to what's going to happen the regular season, and it really doesn't. Also, you look at fantasy football numbers. I think people get a little skewed yep. on that, and then uh, they they go bonkers. And uh, but also too. I think fans see what we report at training camp, and a lot of times, and I do warn people about this, the nice, shiny new toys get more publicity than Cam Jordan and Ryan Ramchick. You know what I'm saying? We don't talk about them at camp because we know they're established and they are rock solid and some of the best of their positions. So we, we are more focused on the newer players and when people stand out, they stand out. But to say if Emmanuel Butler wasn't any good, we'd never talk about him. Uh, so, I, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword there. You want to report, and yet you don't want to overhype. Look, I think you make a great point. I think we're guilty of that in the media. Certainly, I think fans need to understand also, I mean, the Saints media corps, look, from when I started covering the team in, in 99 to now, the difference in the level of coverage is exponential. It's it's one of the most striking disparities that I can seen in journalism. Uh, there used to be three or four of us covering the team back in 99, 2000. Now the interest level wasn't as, I mean, the, the team wasn't as good. So the interest level matched that. Now you go to practice and Larry, you, you obviously know this as, as well as anybody. I mean, there's 50 media members out there. I don't even know who some of these people are. I'm out there almost every day like you. And everyone's looking for a story. There's saturation coverage, and I think it's important for everyone to temper their enthusiasm. And the best example I can give you of, of that, where we did it for once, <laughs> as opposed to rushing to judgment or, or, or overhyping, was Emmanuel Butler. I was working on an Emmanuel Butler deep dive for The Athletic. Uh, I talked to his college coaches. I talked to his high school coach. Uh, but we were not going to run that story talking to editors until it merited it, until he earned something of that level because we didn't want to overhype the kid. And and sure enough, uh, that, that feature may never see the light of day. We'll see. Maybe one day he makes the active roster and emerges. But that was an example of us not overhyping a kid, even though we saw him early in camp make a few plays. I think we did the right thing there. And Jeff, another perfect example of that is Catherine Terrell. She worked on a story on Deontay Harris, sat with the parents, you know, talked to high school coaches, all, all of this. She did a, a, a great job on the story. Go check it out uh, at theathletic.com slash New Orleans, her deep dive on Deontay Harris. But she did not run that story until the cuts yes. were made. And we felt secure that he was going to make the team. So uh, that is kind of the luxury we have. Uh, about, uh, say, not doing daily observations, hurry up and run out and put something daily, because that's how people get overhyped. I mean, we put it on Twitter, but you and me are not running out and saying, oh, my gosh, let's throw Emmanuel Butler in a headline, <clears throat> except I did once in a roster projection. But still, that's because I thought he had earned his <laughs> way on the roster, but I waited probably three or four roster projections before saying that, and yet we we temper 
uh, our expectations just because we've done it for so long. Like we've seen it and we've done it so long. So I think that's uh, that's kind of a good route. All right, let me get. Let, let to, me give. It, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say real quick another example of that. And, and again, we're going to sound like we're we're beating our chest here, but you really do have to when you watch practice understand what's going on. A lot of times, even people like Larry and I who have been there for you know decades. We don't know exactly what's going on out there. Even you can stand at practice sometimes with Bobby Abair and Deuce McAllister, guys that played in the NFL, and they don't know what's going on because they're not on the inside in the locker room. So it's dangerous to make assumptions. And the best example I can give you of that, and then we'll move on real quick. Uh, earlier this year, uh, we saw Marshawn Lattimore inter- intercept Drew Brees on a pass, and we all wrote about it. We all tweeted it. We are all talking about it. And I found out later on talking to Pete Carmichael that Breeze threw that ball on purpose because he wanted to get a look from Jared Cook on a certain route, and he was going to throw that pass even though the coverage by the defense dictated that he not throw the ball there. But it's practice. It's it's you know 11-on-11 11 11 team drills. Breeze is so uh, purpose-minded trying to get his passing timing down that he said, I'm throwing this ball over there anyway. The ball gets picked off. We're all tweeting how Lattimore makes this great play when actually – Breeze is just getting ready for the regular season, trying to get his timing down with his new tight end. That's the danger you run trying to make judgments on plays in the middle of April or May or June. Jeff, let's go through a couple more position groups, and then uh, we'll move over to uh, the new run-and-shoot offense up at LSU that we're finally seeing for the first time ever. Uh, Let's look at defensive line, a, a name that I think popped out that you and me kept saying could make this team was undrafted rookie shy Tuttle. Look, he made it through these cuts and is on the team. Now that might be a one week visit, but still he made it through. And then at cornerback, I've written off Ken Crawley and he's on the team. Uh, Your thoughts on both of those guys uh, sticking through uh, the training camp cut downs. Yeah, I, we we talked about Tuttle. Tuttle popped out to me a lot in practice. I see why they like him. I think this is probably, like you said, a temporary move. Uh, they've got some depth issues at three technique. When Sheldon Rankins gets back here on the roster and Mario Edwards' injury concerns, it makes sense to keep him. But he's a guy that I think they have interest in trying to develop. Uh, so I, it, it didn't surprise me given their injury history uh, there. And uh, who was the other one, Larry? Ken Crawley. Oh, by the way, uh, just just a uh, heads up. Look, David Onyemata's out for one week, so when he comes yep. back, he's back on the roster, and someone's gone. So you got to yep. do that. But but Ken Crawley. Look, I wrote this guy off as soon as he signed his restricted free agent tender, and he has made it through, Jeff. Well, look, I, I think it makes sense. I mean, you're trying to get your best fifty three, and they probably feel like. Uh, there's not a lot of difference once you get past Marshawn Lattimore. In my opinion, there's not much difference in any of their corners after Lattimore. And I'm, I'm, I'm throwing Eli Apple into that group. I know he starts and he's got a big name as a former top 10 pick, but Eli Apple and King Crawley, there's not a ton of difference in my opinion, other than King Crawley probably doubles the number of penalties, but Eli Apple had a lot of penalties last year as well. He led the, I think he led the, 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 entire secondary and penalties, and he wasn't even with the team all year. So I think they're just trying to cover their bases at a position uh, that has value in the league, and they don't know who the best one of that group is, and they need depth there. They tend to have a lot of injuries there. 
Uh, they have at least recently. They've got a lot of guys in the secondary on this team. I mean, they kept uh, five safeties as well, six DBs, so they kept 11. I feel like they, I feel like they feel that's the depth of their defense right now, but I'm not sure that there's any standouts in that entire group once you get beyond Lattimore at corner and probably Vaughn Bell at safety. And I guess I should have thought about this before jumping to conclusions uh, throughout training camp, but who do you trust out of the nickel guys to play on the outside in a pinch? Probably none of them. And that's Patrick Robinson and PJ Williams and Ken Crawley. He does not play on the inside. He plays on the outside. So maybe that has something to do with it. Also, Chris Banjo being let go. I've already seen reports that he's taking visits already. Uh, you kind of threw that out there and we I know you and Catherine Terrell were both trying to tell me, oh, I don't know if he's safe. And uh, I'm going to admit I was, uh, I probably was on the wrong end of that because he is off the roster. They went with JT gray uh, as their safety and then kept Saquon Hampton. So that seems like uh, health wise, that's good for him, even though we haven't seen him now another kind of disclaimer here to be put on IR, you've got to be on, the 53-man roster. So if you were put on IR at the end of training camp during these cuts, you are gone for the year. So that you know that could, if they wanted to possibly bring Hampton back or, or Craig Robertson or somebody, just throwing a name out there, ends up on IR, uh, that, that's part of the reason why. So, uh, but, but overall, Jeff, I think we can look at this and say the Saints came out of training camp basically unscathed. And now it's time for the Texans. Yeah, and I don't think there were a whole lot of surprises. I mean, some of these were somewhat eyebrow-raising because we're so hyper-vigilant in our coverage. But uh, nothing – there was no shock. There was no Patrick Robinson not making the team that would have kind of shocked people. And I think you're dead on, Larry. Uh, Great point about King Crawley playing on the outside. I don't think they liked what they saw from Patrick Robinson out there, and that might have saved King Crawley's roster spot. It could have been that close. And certainly he's a guy that's more comfortable outside. And if Lattimore or Eli Apple goes down, who are you going to put out there? It's probably going to be Crawley now, not Patrick Robinson. So, uh, And I think Saints fans would all agree they don't want anybody to go down outside. But this team's ready to go. We've said it since training camp started. It's a veteran team. It's a team that uh, probably didn't need much more than two weeks of training camp to get their pad health on, uh, you know, conditioning on. And uh, I'm really eager to see them line up against a Texans team that I think is highly overrated right now. And uh, we'll get into that later this week, but I don't think it's going to be close on Monday night. Well, we saw, could we call it Saints offense 2.0, at least a scaled down version of it because they don't want to show Texas. But Jeff, uh, LSU fans got, the treat they've been waiting for for quite some time. You were at Tiger Stadium on Saturday night. LSU could do basically no wrong against Georgia Southern, 55-3. to Joe Burrow is yanked after the first half because he was too prolific. Uh, five touchdown passes in one half. And, Jeff, I know you wrote about Joe Burrow, but you were there. I watched it on TV, and actually I got bored. I started flipping to Tulane, I mean, to Tulane's next opponent, Auburn, as they took on uh, Oregon. But your overall thoughts on what you saw Saturday night at LSU? Well, I mean, I think it was exactly what LSU fans have been dreaming of their entire lives. I mean, at least the last two decades, 
for years, Larry, I mean, they've had this dominant defense, uh, you know, NFL caliber defense. You've got Dave Aranda, who's like an NFL defensive coordinator. Uh, and the offense has been in the Cro-Magnon era. Uh, you know, they, they this have not matched the level that their defense has. And so they, they would dominate teams and win 24 to 9 or something. I mean, it was just ridiculous when the rest of college football was had moved on offensively and had been, become cutting edge. Even Alabama, we see, we've seen what they've done. Here Alabama, uh, LSU is still kind of running this basic offense, and it showed, and, and LSU fans are sophisticated enough to see that and know that that's probably what's holding them back. Now you have Joe Brady comes in, and I think a lot of people were skeptical, not just about Brady's ability, but I think how much he was going to change things. And we saw it. I mean, he changed everything. They were in the spread formation almost the entire game, uh, shotgun, four or five wides almost every play, and it it was the only difference really between the Saints and what LSU's doing is that they're they're basically running an RPO running game uh, out of the out of the gun. And Drew Brees, of course, is almost always is almost always under center, so the running game's a little different than how LSU's doing it. But the passing concepts are exactly what the Saints do. And to me, you've got a quarterback that can pull it off in Joe Burrow. He's a coach's son, a gym rat. He loves getting involved in the X's and O's. He can handle the mental burden that comes with playing in this sophisticated offense, the stuff we talked about earlier, the attention to detail it requires to play in the Saints offense. Drew Brees obviously thrived has thrived in it, uh, became a different level quarterback once he got in this Sean Payton offense. And Joe Burrow uh, clearly is thriving in it and going to thrive in it. And I think is going to be a Heisman Trophy. I mean, I, I – Tweeted that out kind of jokingly, but I think he, if they, this team has the year I think they're going to have, I think he's going to put up huge numbers, and I think he's going to get in the conversation uh, for uh, Heisman Trophy just because of the efficiency that he played at. I mean, you'd have to admit, Larry, I mean, he looked like Breeze in his efficiency. I mean, the ball hardly ever touched the ground. Uh, you know, he spread the ball around just like Breeze does, took what the defense gave him. Uh, it was very impressive. Yeah, even in points where he didn't see something down the field and he'd check it down, but look that the fact that you'd have running backs lined up in some of these uh wide receiver formations at times and my goodness, has LSU fans have they ever seen tight ends be this prolific this early in a season? I mean, you have Thaddeus Moss out there, a receiving tight end, and I'm looking and I'm like, man, that might be Jared Cook <laughs> this season. And so, yeah. you, you know, you're you're seeing that and uh, I know LSU fans uh, are over the moon as they're going up to Texas, but also uh, shifting over to the defensive side real quick. The fact that you saw Kalevon chase on out there running around like a guy with his head on fire. I mean, drilling people legally, legal hits, I will put, but he looked fresh. He looked like he was, uh, you can name every cliche, chomping at the bit, chip on the shoulder, blah, 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 blah. But he looked like he was so ready to play. And for this LSU defense to be dominant, he's got to be one of those players. And I thought you saw a great first step for him. Yeah, he looked great. Um, the defense was ready for that triple option. I think we, we talked about it on the pod uh, last week. I, that was the perfect time to play Georgia Southern, first game of the year, because you can – work your entire offseason against that 
unconventional approach. And the LSU did. I mean, uh, Ed Ogeron told Georgia Southern's coach they've been working on their scheme since February. So they were ready for it, and, and the results were impressive. The one guy we didn't get to see much of was the heralded freshman, Derek Stingley Jr. Uh, I was actually going to write about him. I planned on uh, writing about his debut, but it became pretty apparent early on that was not the game to write about Derek Stingley Jr. He was not really tested at all. They threw 11 passes in the whole game. I think they threw about three to his direction. He had a nice punt return on his first touch as an LSU Tiger. I think it was 32 yards. You could see the athleticism. But we will get a truer gauge of Stingley and the LSU defense and the entire LSU team this coming week when they go to number 10 Texas, who had an impressive win against Louisiana Tech. And uh, I think we're going to know a lot more about LSU after that game. Yeah, I'm going to be going up to Baton Rouge tomorrow uh, to do some reporting on something I'm going to be writing later on this week. So I'll uh, have my uh, chance to catch up with LSU and their players uh, tomorrow. And then, Jeff, I mentioned Auburn. Boy, they looked like they were dead in the water. Then Oregon basically goes Pac-12 because that's what the Pac-12 do. They basically just lay down. And then... Bo Nix, their freshman, true freshman quarterback, comes through, gets them. It reminded me of Matt Flynn throwing to Demetrius Bird at the end of that game, touchdown, and they beat Oregon. And now Tulane, of course, I know we're going to be covering that game. And I could tell you, I Tulane fans, as far as, say, outcry for coverage and this and that. Look, we hear you, and I will just say this internally. I, you are showing the Athletics some support here, so uh, that is uh, good on all signs. So we will certainly uh, uh, cover what's important. And, Jeff, Tulane is, what, a 20-point dog I, I saw going into Auburn. I think that's a little much. I understand it's Auburn, and people probably don't have a lot of respect for Tulane. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think, though, that, uh, that Auburn, I, we mentioned this last week, how are they going to react to this game? I mean, dramatic, huge win beating Oregon, and how are they going to respond to this uh, when a team you're paying to play, Tulane, to come in uh, and you're assuming a victory there? Yeah, well, a lot of things to unpack there. First of all, uh, it was a classic SEC win, I tell people all the time, uh, don't judge a game too quickly in an SEC when an SEC team's on the field at halftime because the real game is won or lost in the second half. Their physicality wears teams down uh, defensively and offensively. They have depth, and they just keep cranking out four- and five-star athletes, and they just wear opponents down. That's exactly what happened against Oregon. Oregon's starters – are probably a little better than Auburn's. But they don't have the depth, and it, it took its toll on them down the stretch. They couldn't move the ball at all in the second half against Auburn. I think that's going to be the challenge for Tulane. How successful can Justin McMillan and that offense be against a dominant SEC-level defense? Uh, Derek Brown, their defensive tackle, is going to be a top-10 pick next year. Uh, LSU recruited him very heavily. Uh, can they move the ball? Uh, can that offensive line have any success against that great defensive line for Auburn? I don't know, but I do think it sets up perfectly for Tulane. Like you said, Auburn has this you know, you know, really momentous win, comeback win. 
Now they come back home, it'd be easy to have a letdown against a Tulane team that historically has not been very successful. Uh, you're playing at home, easy to let your guard down, and I think it's a, a perfect setup for Tulane. I'll, I'll be shocked if they don't play them at least within the 20-point spread. I'll, I'll be stunned if they get blown out in this game just because I think uh, they're a lot better team than they have been and they're a lot better equipped physically uh, and with talent on the roster to uh, compete at this level. I also think Tulane's strength is their defense. And so it's not like Auburn set the world on fire. I mean, they were extremely fortunate. Uh, Oregon was about to go in uh, for another score early in the second half. And then you have uh, Justin Herbert fumbles the ball and Auburn takes it back almost all the other way. Uh, it, that was a huge momentum shift, even though I don't think Auburn scored a touchdown on that drive. But still, Oregon was on its way to scoring another touchdown, and that could have put them uh, in the ground. And so, uh, you know, it, it's it's not like Auburn's coming in and uh, Bo Nix was completely great in that game. So I think Tulane's defense could be a little bit of a difference there as well. Yeah, look, Bo Nix was a classic uh... – true freshman performance, right? I mean, he had a couple interceptions early. His completion percentage was way down, but you had to be impressed with the way he brought the team back. Uh, that game-winning touchdown, was that took a lot of, of gumption to throw that ball in single coverage. I mean, it easily could have been picked off. It was his man against Oregon's guy, and that was a classic Drew Brees. Uh, I'm just going to throw it up and, and let my guy make a play, and that's what happened. Uh, all they needed was a field goal there, but I think uh, – Tulane defensively can give them some problems just uh, with the looks that they can use and, and maybe disguise some of the coverage in the secondary. The key is going to be, can they stop the run? If, if they can stop the run, their front seven is so much better than it's been in years past. It's the strength of their defense. If they can stop the run, I think they'll be in this game. If they start getting worn down in the second half and those two-yard runs start becoming six- and seven-yard runs, Uh, It's going to be difficult, but I don't think that'll happen. I really don't. All right, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Duncan Holder podcast. Of course, you can catch this one a freebie on a Monday. You can catch it on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your uh, podcasts. And, of course, you can catch it on the Athletics Podcast Network. Don't forget, uh, subscribe on iTunes through Apple. You can uh, rate, review, let us know if we suck, let us know if we're halfway swell. Or let us know if we're doing a great job. But uh, podcast number three in the books. We will have another one later on this week. That one will be behind our uh, The Athletic paywall. So just know that that is coming uh, if you see it on Twitter when we promote it later on in the week. So uh, I want to thank Danielle back in the studio, getting up early on Pacific time zone. Uh, Jeff's got to send her some coffee uh, to to keep her going as, sure. a, as a small token of our gratitude. So uh, for Jeff Duncan, I'm Larry Holder. Thanks for uh, listening once again on Duncan Holder. And we'll be back with you guys next week. Talk to you later.